You know, it's interesting uh, to be able to experience a couple of different professions in my life. Uh, you know that last year I was a social studies teacher at Anton High School, and um, it was uh, very interesting to experience that because as that dreaded first day of class approached, I was always the last person to leave campus during orientation, during that time when the teachers were uh, getting their rooms ready, getting their discipline plans ready, their uh, behavior plans, their procedures, their everything under the sun that had to be done. I was the last one to leave. Maybe it's because I cared more. The reality was I was slow. And it was, it was all new to me. And uh, I wanted to do things right. I wanted to do things the best that I could. And I nevertheless felt like I was falling short, even as that first day approached. And so I, I felt in the end, as much as I tried to prepare, I felt completely unprepared. Because here I was, a 48-year-old rookie teacher um, with very little practical experience in pedagogy. And if you don't know what pedagogy is, don't worry about it. I had to worry about it. My state pedagogy exam was forthcoming, and I had to know about Erickson's stages of development and Bloom's taxonomy and state laws about everything under the sun. And I, I passed the exam because of two reasons. Number one, I studied like crazy. And number two, my principal said, don't give them the answers about what you're actually going to do. Tell them what they want to hear. And I thought, okay, that's good to know. And so I tried to tell them what I, they wanted to hear, and I ended up passing. But, you know, as a rookie teacher, teaching five different subjects, my typical day was 14 hours long. And I had the reason for that, I had to prepare lesson plans throughout the day, uh, for, throughout the year, each day for all five classes. And, and it was stressful. It wasn't like some of the uh, very romantic or type of Pollyannic uh, commercials you hear on TV, you know, become a teacher, it's an open up a brand new world. Um, it wasn't exactly like that. It was very real life. Well, I figure it's probably that way no matter what your profession is. You know, I mean, the reality is, you know, one profession, profession over another, we've all got stress. We've all got issues and difficulties and challenges that come along in our lives. And, and even as a college student, if you're a college student, or even as a high school or junior high or elementary student, there, there's new things. There's stressful things that you have to deal with. And the Bible gives us some very good advice, some timeless advice on how we can face the trials of life with joy. And there's probably nobody in the Bible that's better qualified to address this topic than the half-brother of Jesus. His name was James. And, uh, and you may not have really understood that Jesus had some half-brothers and half-sisters, but the Bible says that he did. And, and so one of these guys was James. Now, the Bible tells us that after Mary uh, gave birth to Jesus, and Jesus, of course, was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit, and so Jesus had no earthly or biological father, uh, but he had, a, he had an adopted earthly father, whose name was Joseph, and Joseph and Mary, after Jesus was born, went ahead and they got married, and they had a normal marriage relationship, and they ended up having at least six kids. Uh, Jesus had uh, two unnamed 
half-sisters, and then he had some half-brothers as well. One was named Joseph, obviously after daddy, and another was named Simon, and then there was a, a not Simon Peter, a different Simon, and then there was a half-brother named Judas, not Iscariot, okay, totally different guy. It just happened to be a common name at the time. And then finally there was James, and uh, James ended up uh, being a pastor, but it, it was going to be a long trip before James ever became a pastor. Because when Jesus, after Jesus had grown up and began his ministry, the Bible tells us that his brothers and his sisters and even his mother did not believe in him. They questioned the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the Bible tells us that Mary thought he had gone nuts. He had gone crazy. And she sent his brothers to go get him. Bring the boy home. He thinks he's the Messiah. And so that was their task. And so they, they finally found where Jesus was. And they're standing outside the house where Jesus was in. And uh, word came to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, your brothers are waiting for you outside. They'd like to have a word with you. And Jesus very famously said, who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Jesus redefined family for us in a very real sense in which this church, I even heard it today, that this church is our family. It's our spiritual family. Whoever does the will of God, that's my family. But it was also a stinging rebuke to his physical family that they were not obeying God's will. And so they could not yet be considered his family. Well, James, the other brothers, they did not believe in Jesus during his ministry. But once Jesus' ministry was over, something changed. And they did believe in Jesus. What was the difference? The difference was this, that shortly after Jesus died, and by the way, there was no mistake that Jesus died on that cross. You see, to you and me, it was the Savior of the world who died on the cross. But to James, that was his older brother who died on that cross. His older brother, who he thought perhaps even at that late stage in Jesus' ministry, was somehow misguided and misled. But that was his older brother on that cross. And we don't know if James himself saw his brother on the cross, but we know his mama did. Mary was there. Mary saw her son on that cross. And there was no mistake that Jesus was dead. None whatsoever. And so it must have been quite a shock not too many days later, when James was reintroduced to his brother, the resurrected Lord Jesus, we're told in the book of 1 Corinthians, met with James. And that made all the difference. That's when James believed and his brothers believed. And they began to be followers, not only of their brother, but of the Lord and Savior of the world. It was the resurrection of Jesus that made all the difference. And so when James saw his own brother who had obviously died, 
but now was raised from the dead, he was convinced that this man is the Savior of the world. And James, not too many years later after that, would become a pastor, the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem, in fact. And it's James' pastoral experience that qualifies him to write to you and me about the difficulties of this life and how we can experience trials and yet have joy in the midst of it. What do I mean by that, that it's his experience as a pastor? I want to just take you on a very brief journey with some of the things that James had to experience as a pastor. In Acts chapter 12, you don't need to turn there because we're not going to read from that passage, but in Acts chapter 12, it's that great story of Peter being miraculously escaped from prison with the help of the Lord. And if you read that story carefully, it says that after he escaped, he sent a special message to James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Well, that all sounds very nice, but guess what? There was somebody who wasn't happy about Peter's escape. And it was Herod, the regional king, who was accountable to nobody except Caesar. Herod was not happy that Peter escaped. And James, I believe, had to bear the brunt of that as the pastor of the Christians there in Jerusalem. James had to have the burden of having Herod and that fire breathing down his neck about the entire incident. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 15, the, that little infant church that had not been around for so many years was under, the, under the, the verge of being split into two, a Gentile group and a Jewish group. And it was James, along with Peter, who helped hold the church together. James was a calming voice, and he showed the church in Acts chapter 15 through God's Word that Jew and Gentile can become one in Christ. And the church remained unified. In Acts chapter 21, when the Apostle Paul began to send an, a special offering to the church at Jerusalem, he sent it to James and to the other pastors of that church there. And this, was a, this offering was not just an offering for the hurting Christians there in Jerusalem, but it was also a peace offering of Gentile Christians to their Jewish brothers. In Christ, and he presented that to, to James. And so, uh, what I want you to keep in mind is that James was a pastor during a time of tremendous transition. And we know as Baptists how much we love change, right? I mean, it's nothing about Baptists in particular, it's nothing about being old or being young, it's just about being people. We don't like change unless it's going to change to the way we want it to be changed, right? And so we have a difficult time with change. Changing and transitioning, this is always upsetting. It's always demanding. And it's always difficult if you're the pastor of a church during a transitioning time. And so from sources outside the Bible, we learn even more about James. We learn from sources outside the Bible. Other Christian writers, they talk about how much of a prayer warrior James was. In fact, one writer said that he prayed so much his knees were as hard as a camel's knees. I don't know how hard a camel's knees are, but I'm just going to take his word for it that they're pretty hard. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us, and this is not a Christian historian, it's a Jewish historian Josephus. He tells us that in the year AD 62, 
James was martyred for his faith, that the Pharisees in Jerusalem got so upset with him that they cast him off the top of the Temple Mount. And he survived the fall, and so they went down to where he had survived the fall, and they beat him to death with clubs. This, the half-brother of Jesus, being beaten to death in the same city where Jesus was. And the story goes that out of his mouth came the same words that Jesus spoke. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. This man knows about being tested. He knows what it's like to go through difficult times. And he writes to us in the book of James, chapter 1. And we're going to begin a new series. And I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of James, chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. It's right after the book of Hebrews, which is a little bit bigger than it is. And so if you find Hebrews, turn just a little bit further. And we'll be in James, chapter 1. And the series that we're starting today is called A Faith That Works. The book of James was written to help us who follow Jesus live out our faith in a very practical way. And so today and next week we'll look at this issue of spiritual trials that test our faith. We're going to look at issues like humility, prayer, and patience, and brotherly love, and wisdom, true faith versus false faith, We'll look at doing God's Word versus hearing God's Word. All these things are in this incredible little, very straightforward book that we call the book of James. And we'll get to all of those in due time. So I invite you to make uh, coming to this facility week after week a very important time in your life. Let's look at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here we have this man, James. He calls himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if I was uh, Jesus' half-brother, you know what I'd probably call myself? I'd probably call myself, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother. Look at me. Aren't I important? That's not what James calls himself. He says, I'm a bondservant. A bondservant is someone who's chosen to be a servant, chosen to be a slave. And so I've been called to be a slave of Jesus, my half-brother, and that's what I am. And that's how I consider myself. I simply do what he says. James says, and he's writing to the 12 tribes in verse 1, it says, who are dispersed abroad. What what does he mean they're dispersed? Why is he calling them dispersed? Well, there was a man by the name of Stephen. He's written about in the book of Acts. He was a believer in Christ, and he, like James would eventually be, was put to death for his faith. And when that happened, Christians in that region began to scatter all over the place. They began to disperse all over the place. And really, this may have been God's way of scattering the seed of God's Word all throughout the region. And so God was moving the gospel to new areas. You know, God has a way, by the way, of of taking evil actions that humans do and producing good results from it. God's that way. And sometimes I, I understand that the hardships that you face 
they've occurred because someone did something evil to you. Someone did something wrong to you. And I wish there was a way that we could sort of back up time and undo all that hurt and all that pain and that experience. That's just not the way life is. We can't do that. But I tell you what, what God can do. Here's what can happen. And it's going to take a little bit of action on your part. If you will give God your pain, if you will turn over that experience of pain that someone did to you, if you'll turn that over to God, He will bring about good in your life. He will do it. And what do I mean by that? Giving God your pain. Let me explain exactly what I mean by that. When I talk about giving your bad experience over to God, what I mean is this, that you stop hanging on to it. Sometimes, we hang on to the pain that other people have caused us because it's all we can feel. And we want to feel something. And so we don't want to let go. We don't want to give it over to God. Sometimes we hang on to our pain because we know it's the source of the hatred that we have in our heart toward the person that hurt us. And we don't want to stop hating that person. We don't want to let that person off the hook. And so we hang on to that pain. We hang on to that experience and we won't let it go. Sometimes we hang on to that pain because we're afraid. We're fearful that letting go would be making ourselves vulnerable to being hurt again. We just don't want that to happen. But I want you to know, if you're going to trust God with it, then you have to trust Him with it. You have to give it to Him. How do you do that? Here's what you do. You pray something like this. Father God, I've been hurt. I've been wounded. And I don't want this bad experience to define my life. So best I know how, I turn it over to you. Take it from me. I bring it to you. I lay it down at the cross. Bring me healing, Father, please. You pray something like that. And if those bad feelings come back, like they might, you pray again. And you just give it over to the Lord. Now, we all go through difficult times, maybe by someone that hurt us, maybe just the common trials of life. But I want James to show you how you can do more than just endure the trials of life, but really find joy in the midst of them. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, 
when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Two quick points. Number one, it is possible to have joy in the bad times. It is. God wouldn't tell us to do it if it wasn't possible. He says, consider it all joy. You know what most of us would rather consider? It? We'd, some of us actually take, take joy in, in the pain. It's sort of weird. It's not really right. But I know that there are people, and otherwise good Christian people, they enjoy pouting. They enjoy having a pity party. They enjoy saying to everybody, look at me, look at all the pain I'm in. Give me all of your attention. Give me all of, all of your adulation about all the, the bad times I'm going through. Look at me. And, and really the reality is they crave the attention more than they hate the pain. Don't do that. If you're sort of in the habit of doing that, if I've stepped on your toes, I'm, I'm sorry. Not really, I'm not really sorry, but, but I'll pretend like I'm sorry. Uh, don't do that, okay? There's a better way. And James tells us what the better way is, okay? Here's the better way. Here's how to do it. Put your focus on the development of your character. That's it. Put your focus on the development of your character. What do I mean by that? When you go through bad times, what does James say in verses 2 through 4? James says it's producing endurance in you. And when endurance has its full effect in you, when you have endurance built all the way up, where you can, you've been through so much stuff, man, you can go through anything. And it's not going to shake your faith. When you get to that point, you're complete. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That doesn't mean you're, you're a perfect person, but it means you are perfectly complete. There's nothing that you lack. But to get to that point, you've got to go through some hard stuff. You've got to go through some bad stuff. You know, there's something that probably each one of us in this room has I've got some right here. I've got some jewelry. Two pretty gold rings. And both of them mean a lot to me. This one means a lot more. Because this ring is a reminder to me of my commitment to my, my bride. Okay? But these rings, they're, they're, they're nice and they're pretty. And they're gold. They're not 24 karat gold. That would be 100% pure. They're more like probably 10 karat. Maybe 14 gold, which is somewhere in the 40 to 60% range pure. But it's, it's what most of our jewelry is. Well, how do they make gold pure? What do they do to make gold pure? They turn up the heat. They crank up the heat. And when you crank up the heat with gold, what happens? The impurities rise to the surface. And once the impurities are exposed, the impurities can be disposed. You 
are spiritual gold. And you might not even know it. God has made you spiritually to be gold in here. There is eternity within you. God has built eternal qualities that will last beyond this physical body that is in some stage of decay and that will eventually give way. He has eternal qualities that are spiritual gold that are in you. Don't be surprised. If he has built these spiritual qualities in you, which are meant for a new heaven and new earth, one that he's preparing you for in this heaven, in this earth, don't be surprised if from time to time he's got to turn up the heat. Time to time, the bad times will come. The trials will come. And when that heat is turned up in your life, those impurities within you will rise to the surface. They'll become exposed. And impurities exposed can become impurities disposed. You can confess them, get them out of your life, and they are no more. God will turn up the heat in your life just like when gold is heated up. And don't expect that the bad times will always be cut short. We can pray, Lord, I'm not going through a good time right now. I don't know if I can stand this. God, please cut short this bad time. We can pray for God to cut the bad times short. There's no guarantee that He will. There is a guarantee that the bad times will not last forever. I need you to understand that. I desperately need you and every person in your life to understand that when you or they go through a bad time, it doesn't last forever. We have way too many suicides in our society today. And a large part of that is because people have come to the false belief, to the devil's lie, that the bad times are going to last forever. I'm telling you, they will not. Good times are ahead. You have to endure the bad times. And if you're going through a, a time in your life, at a place in your life, where things are just so dark and deep and you just can't feel like there's any way out, you need to call somebody. You need to call me if you need to call me. My number's in the bulletin. It's my cell phone. Put that in your cell phone. You call me day or night. That's what pastors do. This church will be here for you. And you will face no condemnation for going through a bad time, for feeling bad about your life or about things you've gone through. Please understand, the bad times do not last forever. They don't last forever. There are good times ahead. And you're not meant to walk through those bad times alone. The bad times might not be cut short. Sometimes difficulties and trials, they have a way of sort of going through the entire process. And there's nothing you can do but go, just go through the process with it. You know, if the bad times were cut short, maybe your character would be cut short too. 
and God is building character in you. You're not alone if you go through bad times. You can experience those bad times with joy if you'll see the light beyond the darkness right now. If you'll understand that there is eternal character being built in your heart and in your soul. And that's the only way I know when times are really bad to have joy. But it can happen if you believe. The very first step is to be a follower of this half-brother of James, this man Jesus who died on a cross and who rose from the grave, to follow him and let him be with you every step of the way. That's one of the the great promises that we have in the Great Commission, the last words in, in the book of Matthew that Jesus spoke. The very last thing he said was, I will be with you. I'll be with you wherever you go, all of the way. As you follow me, I'll be with you. Isn't that an amazing promise? If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I will make you that promise that if you follow Jesus, he'll never leave you. He'll be with you forever. Every step of the way, you'll never be alone.